After 22 years of nightmare and terror, saved only by a desperate conviction of the mythical source of certain impressions, I am unwilling to vouch for the truth of that which I think I found in Western Australia on the night of July 17, 1935. There is reason to hope that my experience was wholly or partly an hallucination, for which indeed abundant causes existed. And yet its realism was so hideous that I sometimes find hope impossible. If the thing did happen, then man must be prepared to accept notions of the cosmos and of his own place in the seething vortex of time, whose merest mention is paralyzing. He must too be placed on guard against a specific lurking peril which, though it will never engulf the whole race, may impose monstrous and unguessable horrors upon certain venturesome members of it. It is for this latter reason that I urge, with all the force of my being, a final abandonment of all attempts at unearthing those fragments of unknown primordial masonry which my expedition set out to investigate. That was the opening of H.P. Lovecraft's science fiction masterpiece, The Shadow Out of Time. And you are joining us here at the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lanky, And we are at hppodcraft.com. That reading we just heard was by trusty old Andrew Lehman returning to the show. When you need your text to stimulate screaming, just put in a call to Andrew H. Lehman. <laughs> Everybody knows that old jingle, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I remember that But uh, Andrew's the perfect choice for this show. Not just because he's great and we're glad to have him back, but yeah. because he and Sean Branny over at the H.P. Uh, Lovecraft Historical Society, they produced a radio adaptation. Yeah, absolutely. And Andrew Lehman is the main character, Nathaniel Wingate Peasley. It's a, it's a great radio adaptation. I recommend everybody check it out. It comes with really uh, cool props oh, from yeah. the story as well. And since we're in the Andrew Lehman section of the show, he's also going to be reading The Temple. Yes. The full story. We're also producing a reading of The Hound featuring Anthony Tedesco. Well, we're making them and holding them hostage. It's going to be made no matter what, but we're not releasing right. them out into the world until we make our demand of $2,000. And we're almost there, actually. I mean, we're doing pretty good, yeah. right? It's, we're more than halfway, um, I know for sure. So that's coming soon. A reminder that those are also in support of Self-Made Heroes' upcoming Lovecraft Anthology Volume 2, beautiful graphic novel in which Chris and I adapted those stories yep. that we're releasing the readings for. So those will be coming out hopefully in March when we hit our target. Please donate any amount you can. It helps us keep the show going. The other guy I wanted to mention real quick was Reber Clark. He made a film a couple of years ago called Lovecraft Paragraphs that played at the Lovecraft Film Festival and he's got it up on YouTube now so yep. anybody can check it out. Uh, we'll link out to it. I was watching it and I thought you know what I'm going to steal some of that music again. We've used music from that <laughs> film for this show plenty and then he's also done some original pieces for us as well so yep. our Shadow Out of Time music is going to be by Reber Clark. I haven't read this story. Yeah, I know, Chad. When you mentioned that on our show last <laughs> week, the forums and the, the comments sort of lit up and people were <laughs> horrified that somebody that does an H.P. Lovecraft literary podcast would not have read one of H.P. Lovecraft's uh, best love stories. I know. It seemed to freak people out. But I guess that underlines us saying that we're not scholars. Uh, <laughs> I mean, look, it's one of those things. Certainly once we started the show, I put it off because obviously I knew we'd get to it. Yeah. But before that, I'd, I'd liken it to a movie you feel like you saw, but you never actually saw. Yeah, of course. Like, 
you, you'll catch snippets of it on cable, so you're conversing on it. You feel like you've seen it. And you're a little embarrassed to admit you haven't actually seen it, right? Because I know I kind of knew the basic stuff. I knew it was a time travel deal, and yeah. and that it was like Mountains of Madness. And I mean, you used to have a the poster. I did. Andrew Lehman printed up the cover of Astonishing Tales that it appears on, and made it into a poster for me. And right. I had that in my room for or in my uh, living room for. Years, yeah. So I mean, I I, re- I remember that, and and I, I knew they were these cone guys with a bunch of arms, and I just <laughs> I don't know. I never. A, a lot of it is that I'm not much of a binge reader. I mean, I I definitely had my period when I was a teenager. Where I got immersed in Lovecraft, but I guess also I'm kind of lazy because sometimes I'd flip through an anthology and I'd think, ah, that one's got too many pages. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> this Pickman's model looks pretty good. I have to say, I'm actually a little envious of you. Well, yes, that's the last point because you. Yeah, you get to go and have a brand new cool Lovecraft story that yep I I, I can't do that I've read them all so yeah. all the good ones I should say right right and right. it's it's hard to go oh man there is going to be no new Lovecraft ever again this is it I know but you being in your mid thirties mm-hmm. mid to late thirties mm-hmm. uh, have just read a brand new Lovecraft story and for that I I envy you as you should and I got kind of you know I got all kind of worked up for it I put some candles out. Played some romantic music. Well, I didn't do that. But, you know, sat down in my chair. Greased yourself up. Greased myself up. I, I figured I'm going to grab, because a lot of times I'll read these. I'll, I'll print out from the hplovecraft.com or I'll read it on my Kindle. But I mm-hmm. went back and got my Del Rey Bloodcurdling Tales of Horror and the Macabre. You know, the one with the, it's got the gray and red yeah. Oh, illustrations yeah, I remember those, on the yeah. cover. So I thought I'm going to read it in this old beaten up copy. And truly, it was the only story in there that I, I haven't cracked before. As I started in on the opening passage... It was broken up into several short paragraphs. Like, it was almost bullet-pointed in a way. I would guess so that each separate thought is easier to absorb, but this is where our show pays off because uh-huh. I thought, this seems really weird to me. Yep. Lovecraft doesn't usually break up thoughts like this. He's no. e- Even though as an editor I might recommend it, he doesn't do that. And no. I thought, this, this can't be right. So I went to hplovecraft.com, and I compared what the story was there to my Delray, and of course I was right. Yeah. It's one big paragraph. What most people have read, it's that's actually broken up into several segments. So before I even dove in, then I thought, well, I should figure out. I, I know that we've that Joshi over time has corrected a lot of the story. Yeah. But this has a different story that's very recent. That's even kind of, it's pretty interesting, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, it was Lovecraft's original manuscript was found in uh, 1995. Was it 95? Yeah. Barlow typed up the original handwritten copy that Lovecraft. Uh, had written that handwritten copy that Barlow had typed from is what was found. Yeah, I got a an article from Bibliophile, which is the newsletter of the Brown University Library, which mm-hmm. has the manuscript, and it kind of describes how it was rediscovered. I found it pretty interesting. The article says a four decades long search ended on the afternoon of January seventeenth, nineteen ninety five, when a fax came <laughs> from uh, Mr. Nelson Shreve of Kalua, Hawaii. It was received at the John Hay Library. It said, "I found among my deceased sister in law's papers what seems to be the original manuscript of the Shadow." Out of Time by H.P. Lovecraft. Dated February 22nd and 24th, 1935, it's written in pencil in a child's notebook and in very fragile condition. I have no idea how my sister-in-law came into possession of it. And with it's this cryptic postcard dated March 1966 from a certain August Erleth mm-hmm. of Arkham House in Sauk City, Wisconsin, saying the John Hay Library has an extensive Lovecraft collection and would welcome any further material offered them. Uh, so this guy said, you look like you'd be the proper stewards for this manuscript. And he donates it to the library from Lucille Shreve in the name of June Evelyn Ripley. Right. So Brown grabs it, and then the article goes on to say, 
what you just said, that Barlow had transcribed it. Mm -hmm. It was not found among his papers when he died in 51. And so people have actually been looking for this for a while, knowing that the Astounding Stories version was corrupt. Yeah. In this article, it mentions, on November 10th, 1934, Lovecraft hesitantly began to write The Shadow Out of Time. He destroyed his first attempt and continued to struggle with the rewriting. But finally, on March 14th, 35, he announced that he had finished, but doubt whether it is good enough to type. I may tear it up and start all over again. In June of 35, Lovecraft took the manuscript with him when he left for Florida to visit Barlow, which is so funny that we just discussed that whole thing. Well, he didn't actually take it with him. He had it mailed to him. Yeah, he was down there, and then he decided to have it mailed to him, I believe. Uh, Okay, this is according to Joshi. Then, while visiting R.H. Barlow in Florida in the summer of 1935, HPL asked Derelith to send him the manuscript as Barlow wished to read it. In fact, Barlow surreptitiously typed the story when H.P. Lovecraft uh, sent the typescript for circulation among his correspondents. The first respondent, uh, Donald Wandry, instead took the story to F. Orlin Tremaine of Astounding, that's Astounding uh, Stories, after mm-hmm. he learned Julius Schwartz's sale of At the Mountains of Madness. And he was hoping that since Mountains of Madness got sold, that he could you know, make some bank off uh, off this story. Right. Julius Schwartz was the editor of Fantasy Magazine, and yeah. he had been kind of acting as Lovecraft's agent. Sort of, yeah. And so in December 35, Lovecraft wrote to Jay Vernon Shea that I've had a bit of unexpected good luck, both my Mountains of Madness and the new Shadow Out of Time, having been accepted by Astounding Stories. Yay! Yep. Good luck for Lovecraft. Uh, however, he was greatly disappointed by the poorly edited versions that were printed, in 1936. Barlow had the original manuscript in his possession when he secured a teaching position at Mexico City College, which we talked about before, Mm -hmm. where he later became chairman of the Department of Anthropology and met June Ripley. Apparently they became friends. He entrusted the manuscript to her before his suicide. She remained in Mexico for seven more years before returning to the United States, teaching all over the place until she retired in 1993. She died in 94, and that's when the manuscript was discovered. Wow. The manuscript, 65 and a half pages long, includes a tipped-in sheet containing four revised paragraphs over the original opening lines. On that page is the notation, begun November 10th, 1934, and on the final page is written, finished February 22nd, 1935, and revised on the 24th, February 24th, 1935. There are numerous word and paragraph differences between it and the printed version, as well as two full sentences of previously omitted text. So as a result of this gift, we can now read the shadow out of time exactly as Lovecraft wrote it. It makes me wonder how much of those original manuscripts and things people had hold of, and then they just threw it away because they didn't know what it was. Yeah, I know. Certainly, uh, it makes me not want to read those old books I have, you know, because we owe a lot to S.T. Joshi for going in and getting these original manuscripts together and correcting them. But this is such a stroke of luck, you know, Yeah, to have found it and sent it in. And I love the detail that it's in the children's notebook. And it made me feel vindicated, actually, for waiting to read the story. Yeah. (laughs) Had I read this when I was a teenager, I would have read the wrong one. I got to say kudos, man, for, you know, you've got the Lovecraft chops to be able to read it and go, wait a minute, this doesn't feel like Lovecraft. There's no way, unless we'd been doing this for so long, that I would have done that. But that's honestly true. I didn't know about the rediscovered manuscript, and it just seemed off to me. It was as if a second personality were writing the story. (laughs) (laughs) Which is good enough, I guess, transition for us to stop talking about the context and just get into it get into the story so in that opening we learned that this guy has been having nightmares for 22 years yes nathaniel wingate peasley and he's only been staying sane by believing that these dreams he's been having are based on myths of some kind yeah but during this expedition in western australia he's found something and it's either real and confirms his nightmares or he's just lost he's totally gone nuts and the thing isn't actually real now there's no proof of what he found 
because he was in, stricken by fear and he lost it, whatever mm-hmm. it is. He was alone when he found it as well. Right. And he hasn't told anybody about it, but he's writing about it now so that he can give it to his son. The son is now a psychology professor at Miskatonic, and they're very close. And so he's writing it down so that hopefully his son can look it over, maybe give it to some friends, figure out whether he's going nuts or not. Mm-hmm. And hopefully he can discourage people from continuing this expedition, whatever it is, much like at the Mountains of Madness. He says that many of the earlier facts in the story might be familiar to the public, but he's going to go ahead and put them down here. If you say don't read psychological journals every month cover to cover, which is probably everybody. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, what, I'm sorry, you don't, Jen? No, I don't do that. I don't. This, this whole show is becoming about what I haven't read. Um, <laughs> Nathaniel had a totally normal childhood, yeah? Yes. He, he stresses that because this is another story that's kind of set in Arkham. It would be more likely, say, you grew up in Arkham that you would suddenly get possessed by somebody or something. But he stresses, you know, I grew up in Haverhill, Massachusetts. I didn't go to Arkham until I was 18 for college. Mm-hmm. I went to Harvard for grad school and he comes back to Miskatonic to teach in yeah. 1895. Yeah, and he's because he's a political economy teacher. Not mythos-related anything. He just happens <laughs> right. to be teaching at Miskatonic in economics. And then he gets married yep. to Alice in 1896 and then they have three kids... Robert, Hannah, and, of course, Wingate, who we talked about before. Wingate, right. his, his uh, youngest. And everything's great for 13 years. No interest in the occult, and then something awful happens. And then 1908, uh, he has a fit. It says this early in the story. From 1908 to 1913, he has this bout of amnesia. He doesn't remember anything that happened from there. Right. That's pretty much what this whole first chapter is about, exactly. He says, here's what the inciting incident was of that amnesia. He's giving a lecture... Yeah. In uh, Political Economy 6, mm-hmm. which is also one of my favorite movies. The first five are <laughs> crappy, but 6 is awesome. May 14th, 1908, he's doing his lecture, and then about 10.20, he's talking, and then he feels like something's grabbing his thoughts, or he's somewhere mm-hmm. else. And to the students, they see his speech gets all crazy, gibberishy, and he slumps down in his chair, and he's just, he goes unconscious, right? Mm-hmm. He just goes, yeah. And at this point, you might think, you know, maybe it's a stroke. This is going to be some kind of regarding Henry story. You know? <laughs> He's going to relearn how to love life. He didn't have a stroke. He was shot in the head in regarding Henry. Uh, That's right. That's right. He was shot in the head while buying cigarettes. But it turns out (laughs) this isn't one of those heartwarming uh, learn learn how to appreciate his wife kind of stories. No. In fact, things go really bad for him. He he gets out of it. He's got facial tics and it's not – his face isn't quite working the way it is and he's – speaking in sort of curious idioms and anachronistic vocabulary. This is really creepy part of the story where he uses an expression – that everybody finds really odd. But 20 years later, one of the young physicians that had been there realizes that people are using it Yeah. now. Uh-huh. Like they're using it in the 20s. Yeah. So he used a, an idiom from the 20s in 1908. That's super cool. You are all the cat's pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> but then when they tell him he has amnesia, he goes, oh, yes, that's the thing I have. Yeah. He's kind of happy about that because he was trying to hide the fact that he didn't know what was going on at right. first. Mm-hmm. So the doctor's actually, in a way, kind of helping along this other intelligence. That's yeah, it's, a per- it's, it's another personality, for sure. And this personality, his wife and his children don't buy it that it's him, that, that, that this incident, his stroke or whatever they think has happened to him, has freaked them out to the point that they want nothing to do with him and they leave. It's only his youngest son, Wingate, that kind of holds on to yeah to his dad and says you know what i'm gonna stick through my dad through this i'm not gonna abandon him something in my aspect and speech seemed to excite vague fears and diversions in everyone i met 
as if I were a being infinitely removed from all that is normal and healthful. This idea of a black hidden horror connected with incalculable gulfs of some sort of distance was oddly widespread and persistent. My own family formed no exception. From the moment of my strange waking, my wife had regarded me with extreme horror and loathing, vowing that I was some utter alien usurping the body of her husband. In 1910, she obtained a legal divorce, nor would she ever consent to see me even after my return to normalcy in 1913. These feelings were shared by my elder son and my small daughter, neither of whom I have ever seen since. That just really... It's sad. He has so much, and this affliction has destroyed it. The fact that it ruins his marriage forever... Yeah, it's so close to real life tragedy. I mean, I was thinking of that guy. I don't know if you've ever seen Angels in America, but a big plot line is that there's a there's a guy who gets AIDS and his younger boyfriend leaves him because he just can't cope. Yeah, with the illness, and then Mm -hmm. you know the guy does die, and he never comes back to him. He's kind of tortured by guilt. I just wonder if maybe she was so horrified by it, and then kind of humiliated that she made that awful choice to leave him, so she doesn't want to return to him. It's just a really human thing that happens there. and it underlines how awful this is, this yeah. second personality. Completely strange alien that makes makes somebody give up their husband, father of their children. That's pretty intense. And it's more than just that it's different. The intelligence is smarter than he ever was as well. It's a complete invasion of the body snatchers, horror of a possession kind of story. And I really think it's the core of the, the terror in, the, in this piece. Like, granted, we're going to come up on some awesome monsters and prehistory and stuff, but this mm-hmm. is really the the awful thing. Yeah, it's sad. And obviously it doesn't end well because the beginning of the story, he's telling us what happened. So we know that there is no reconciliation with his wife. There is no happy ending. It's just his trying to understand if he is even uh, sane or not. So I've always been fascinated by, you and I were talking about this a bit before we started recording, but you know, those ants, there's like that fungus that infects certain ants that live Mm -hmm. in tropical rainforest trees. And then when the ants get possessed by the spore, They'll climb down from where they normally live, and they they call them like zombie ants because they bite down on a leaf and they die. But the leaf they choose is the exact place where the fungus needs to be to continue its life cycle. So basically, the the fungus possesses and controls the ant. Is this the same fungus that that there was one that got into an ant or a bug Mm -hmm. of some kind? It controlled it so it went up to the top of a leaf and waited to be seen by a bird, and then picked up by the bird. And then the so there's more. There's a couple. You're right. And then the, the bird would then carry this, this fungus around, and then uh, when it would poop, it would spread it, and then the whole process would happen again. Ants would eat the bird poop and then yeah. go on, and, yeah, and that's how the fungus. But it actually controls the mind of the creature. Right. And it, there's a lot of those things, and some of them people can't explain yet. Like there's a wasp that targets this type of orb spider. Yeah. Have you heard about that? It shoots yep. venom into the into the spider's mouth to immobilize it and then it lays eggs on the spider's abdomen and the spider while it was paralyzed this all happened but when it comes to it just kind of goes about its day but when the larvae on its body get to a certain stage they release a chemical that changes the spider's behavior completely so that it actually starts spinning a different kind of web Mm -hmm. that just happens to be a perfect home for the baby wasps yeah and shields them from predators and then when they mature they actually devour the spider yep and that's their kind of nest which is crazy it's insane scientists can't figure out 
what's going on there. Of course, they're studying it, which scares the hell out of me. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like as soon as they figure that one out, it's going to be well, like every every Happy Meal is going to have wasp juice with it. You know. You also know that in cat poop, there is a is it a bacteria or is it a fungus that exists? It's a, it's, bacteria. Uh, it's a type of bacteria. It's called Toxoplasma gondii. Yes. Which most people are familiar with because of when somebody gets pregnant, you you have to keep the lady away from the litter mm-hmm. because that can be particularly toxic to infants. But it's a parasite, actually. And the parasite can... A parasite. I'm glad that you've read this same article as me. So there was this guy, Yaroslav Fleger, this Czech scientist, right, who felt like he was sometimes acting in strange ways that were self-destructive. Mm-hmm. And so he thought he might have some kind of parasite or something that was making him do that. It's kind of fringe science. A lot of people think this dude's kind of nuts, right? Mm-hmm. But the thing is that the uh, toxoplasma is toxic to infants, but other people might get it. They'll feel like they have a little flu or something like that, but that's it. But they still carry the parasite. Mm-hmm. And some studies have shown that when the parasite... So I think the real thing that happens is the parasite gets into rats or mice mm-hmm. who, because, you know, cats in the wild are shitting in the grass and stuff. The mouse picks it up and it, and it changes their behavior so they act more rambunctious. So they've done tests that rats who have the toxoplasmosa run faster on the treadmills and they're more out in the open, basically making themselves an easier meal for other cats. Exactly. Yeah. Because because that's where the parasite needs to be, right? And the cat mm-hmm. to reproduce. It's kind of like how people dying of STDs will express an intense desire for sex in end stage of like dying from syphilis or, or even AIDS. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Because the venereal disease wants to continue its life cycle. So your behavior changes to promote the life cycle of the, the illness. Really? I, I just freaking me out. So, by the way, the, the toxoplasma thing, so they did tests on people and they found that it did all slightly alter the behavior of humans who had toxoplasma. Like, men mm-hmm. became more antisocial and, and women became more outgoing. Men were more aggressive. It's possible that all sorts of parasites are controlling all sorts of behaviors. Yeah. Yeah, we absolutely. Have. Well, I mean, that's the whole... This uh, toxoplasmosis... Uh, is supposedly mm. connected with crazy cat lady as well. Well, right, that's the thing. So yeah. it might change your it might change your personality a little bit, but if you're borderline schizophrenic or exactly anything like that, having it could tip you into being suicidal or doing something nuts. Right. So it's not the, that it's not crazy people that buy bunches of cats. It's the the number of cats that make people crazy. <laughs> right. And it's I was reading that and it was. Just this information was driving me crazy because I like, I liked, I mean, I know I like to think that what I do mm-hmm. is even a little core driven by my biological impulses. So I make all sorts of things up in my head to, to disguise basic, yeah. you know, then I want to spread my seed to reproduce. Sure. That's why I go to work in little bike shorts. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I, I tell myself it's for comfort, you know. <laughs> But it's for ladies. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> but maybe I'm carrying a parasite that, you know, spandex is the perfect environment for it. So it's not even... Could be. It's not my biological drive yeah. that's doing that. Exactly. Anyway, it's strange that these. I was reading these articles as I was reading this story. I yeah. didn't seek one out because of the other. But it it lends a reality to this replacement or something invading your body. I was even thinking, you know, it seems a little crazy that these creatures in the story can 
cast their minds ahead. But there's just so many things in nature that we can't understand that have these spooky properties. The more I was reading it, the more it was really bothering me, just the whole idea that... I mean, you want to get really heady about it. It's just you can think of that of how much your reality is just in your mind. It's a, it's a construct of your mind, taking mm-hmm. all of this outside stimuli and trying to make sense of it all. And yeah. that's a very precarious thing. Yeah, You know, I mean, even just your social interactions, you think, oh, well, I'm doing this because of this, this and the other thing. But maybe you're not. You're totally unaware why you're doing the things that you're doing or Mm -hmm. what the other person is doing. And I mean, science gets us as close to possible as reality by experimenting and understanding our environment and sharing, being able to share those Mm -hmm. uh, that information. But it's fallible. It's not perfect. Honestly, I think everybody in some way feels like they have a second personality because I know week to week mentally I completely change you know and then I'll think I have everything figured out and then the next week I'll just be crushingly depressed yeah nothing makes any sense and you know and then you don't anticipate those kinds of things but you think you can when you're feeling good yeah you're like I have it all in control now and then you're not in control (laughs) at some point and then you're ashamed of that and then so you you try really hard to do all these things so that you can always have control and always be what you think is going to be cool. But then to find out that there's there's stuff you can't even... You're unknown unknowns. Yeah. There's that illusion of control is an illusion. On, it's just uh, it's terrifying. It is disturbing to think about these things. And that's why I kind of love Lovecraft. We've been off. Yeah, off we, we, we should get back to the first, first chapter <laughs> that we haven't even uh, finished talking about yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, so this is, this is all to say his wife and kids decide they can't see him anymore because he's so crazy. But Wingate, the one son who we said was the psych professor, he's able to get past it. Now, he was eight when the personality change happened. But when his dad gets better, he's willing to go see him. And the courts give his dad yeah. custody of him. So at least he has the comfort of this his one son. One. Yeah. So. But during this period in 1908 to 1913, he starts doing lots of crazy stuff. The first thing he did was go straight to the library mm-hmm. and just read a bunch of books. But then he started going on these right. weird adventures and travels. And he wasn't, he's not too sure exactly what happened, but he knows he went to the Himalayas in, uh, in, in, 19, in 1909. And then around 1911, he went into the deserts of Arabia on camelback mm-hmm. and chartered a ship and sailed to the Arctic North. Right. He returned looking disappointed. Somebody must have written this down because this is information he found out after his bout of amnesia. So who was <laughs> who this person that goes, boy, he looks disappointed after his trip. Let me write that down. Yeah. Well, that, that, those last two trips he took are funny because it was like he was location scouting for other Lovecraft stories, <laughs> right? Because at first he goes out to the Arctic, presumably maybe he's looking for old elder right. thing societies or something. And then he goes to Western Virginia and he's looking around in caves. Yes. So I wonder if he's looking for Migo and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's super neat, but he doesn't have any details. He also finds out that he is spending a lot of time with cults and reading mm-hmm. books, you know, you know, our Lovecraft books, the Necronomicon, the uh, cultist as ghouls, the vermis mysterious, unsprechen Zulchen cult, Colton. <laughs> Von Utes, right, Von Utes, Von, yeah, Von book, yeah. book, and all that stuff. So it, it's it's pretty cool stuff, but he doesn't get any real details about what's going on. And it's not until uh, yeah. f- uh, Friday, the twenty sixth of September, that it's it ends. Uh, some guy, he well before this, he starts talking about, oh boy, you know, I feel like my memory might be coming back. You know, like kind of dropping these weird. Well, they get this sense that he's kind of uh, he displays signs of ennui and flagging interest. Yeah. 
So he's been taking all these trips and speed reading on it as much as he can. He, he is a speed reader, by the way, now. They, they mentioned that. He can, like, take down a book in one sitting. He's getting tired of everything, and he also kind of, he mentions here that he had built some kind of machine uh-huh. around that time. He installed a mechanism of the most curious aspect. He'd gotten lots of scientific apparatus from Europe and America, and it's something like a queer mixture of rods, wheels, and mirrors. About two feet tall, one foot wide, so it's a little device. It's not big at all. But he's built that. He seems like he's getting bored of things, and then that's what leads us to, as you right. said, the Friday, September 26th. Somebody reports seeing uh, an odd-looking foreigner, lean and dark guy. I, I want to think that it's uh, the Swami Chandraputra. That's exactly what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be, right? Yeah, I mean, it could be somebody else, but it, it it's not brought up anywhere else in the story. So for me, it has to be the, the Swami Chandraputra, because right. he seems like the only guy that would be cool with helping out the great race you know like he's he's a beyond time and space so this wouldn't be and maybe he can get something out of it too because he's a, a monster in a odd body as well right yeah he's a he's he is a human in a monster body pretending to be a human right <laughs> <laughs> well i'm i'm positive that's what it is it's gotta be it maybe he's just putting it in for flavor but i think it is a nod to the the swami chandraputra Okay, the the curiously foreign-looking man. He he shows up in an automobile mm-hmm. uh, that night, and by four o'clock, the car is gone. And at six in the morning, a hesitant foreign voice calls the doctor and says, "Hey, you should you should go over to Peasley's house. He's he's had some kind of fainting spell." Uh-huh. And the call can, is traced to a public phone booth. Yep. When the doctor gets to the house, the machine is gone. It's gone, not there. Peasley is unconscious, and when he comes to, he's got an expression like his old self. Yeah. And he starts and, to say, of the orthodox economics of that period, Jevons typifies this prevailing trend towards scientific co- uh, correlation. Yeah, he's and, finishing the lecture. but he, So he's back to his normal self, and he doesn't understand what had happened. No. And that's the first chapter. That ends the first chapter. And at this rate, Chad, it will take us uh, eight <laughs> episodes to get through this story. Well, I think we'll move a little faster. We did yeah, kind of go too. off on some tangents about wasps and spiders and stuff. It, it, that's a lot of information anyway in the first chapter. And the curious thing is that as we get into the next one, in the next episode, that's when there's this kind of quantum leap shift. Sam, <laughs> Ziggy says, if you don't get over there and kiss that girl in the next 15 minutes, you're never going to jump. Buddy Holly will never write that song. <laughs> I love that show. I do love that show, yeah. But it has the same premise as this story. Well. Kind of. <laughs> In a no, way it does. Because when Sam jumps into somebody's body, that personality goes to the future. Yeah. And has to hang out in the future land, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Well, okay, so that's what we're going to, in the second chapter of this, we find out that not only was his body taken over for that period of time, his consciousness, Peasley's, was somewhere else. Right. And that starts to become revealed to him in dreams, and that stuff's all really cool, but we're going at a snail's pace here, so we, we can't get into it yet. Okay, so that, that ends Chapter 1, and this particular episode, I want to thank Andrew Lehman for doing an outstanding reading, as usual. Yes, thank you, Andrew. I want to thank uh, Reaper Clark for providing music. We'll have more of that next time. Another reminder to donate, please, to The Ransom so we can get those right. readings out. We're close, folks, so please just uh, keep sending what you can. You know, five, five, five bucks, two bucks, 20 bucks, whatever you want to send, please do. Well, well I think next time we're going to have Mike Mann on. Yeah, Mike Mann, who is our web guru and uh, mm-hmm. master of all things. He, he helps us out with this stuff, and he's going to jump in and uh, give his two cents about the next part of The Shadow Out of Time. Yes. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HP
Nice, I'm from Mount Hex. 